Chapter 12. Field Trip The pilot sat quietly in the seat of the Gulfstream G950 suborbital prototype space plane. Looking over all the dials and levers, he smiled, thinking how quaint it would be to fly such a machine, since it looked rather simple enough, and wouldn't pose a problem in figuring out. He looked over the pre-programmed flight plans in the nav computer, made some minor adjustments, and then relaxed in his chair. Breathing heavily and looking at his watch, he figured his passengers would be here within 30 minutes. Being used to a more efficient way of traveling, the pilot wasn't excited about how long the trip was going to take. He considered it a mundane way of getting from one point to another. If it weren't for the two others traveling with him to Canada, the trip would be practically instantaneous. After a few minutes, the pilot became completely familiar with the new suborbital G950 and reasoned that, even though it required two pilots, it could automatically handle all flight details from takeoff to landing. With the touch of a button, he pulled up the current flight plan from Dubai to touchdown in Alberta, Canada, approximately 11,000 kilometers. With the plane's top speed of 6,200 kilometers per hour, it shouldn't take more than two to three hours to get there. Since proper precautions would have to be taken to make sure the flight would depart and arrive at its destination incognito, he figured that the total trip might be closer to three hours. The stealth ability of the plane was everything she all needed to get their agents in and out of areas unnoticed by current technologies for tracking air traffic to any place in the world. The plane's advanced abilities gave the pilot options to reduce both thermal and infrared emissions during flight. It also possessed next-gen radar-absorbed materials to make the plane virtually invisible to all detection, far superior to the American stealth bomber. With horizontal takeoff and landing, as well as the ability to comfortably seat 18 passengers, the G950 was the perfect tool for clandestine Shi'al first-strike missions anywhere on the planet. Standing up and walking to the cabin area, the pilot sat on one of the chairs and looked out the window, impatiently waiting for his four passengers. Reflecting on the events from the past several days, the pilot surmised this would be his last field job. With the success of this mission and a well-deserved promotion, he wouldn't have to meddle directly with these pathetic creatures anymore. Minutes began to fly by as the pilot went over the mission details in his mind when he heard a car approaching. His watch said 3.45 in the morning as he stood up and pressed a button, activating the hydraulic system to release the air stair door for the group. Agent Brown was the first to enter the plane and stopped dead in his tracks when he saw the pilot. Quickly diverting his eyes and lowering his head, he entered. Ari, on the other hand, looked at the pilot and smiled without missing a step. Excuse me, shouted Khalid from the parked car. Can you help us with some of these bags? Ari grumbled as he turned to assist but was stopped when the pilot held up his hand. Let me do it. I want to see why the inner circle of six hold this man in such high regard. Yes, master, said Ari. Call me. Pravis looked at the small nameplate on his chest. Vincent. Ari looked at the name and nodded. Khalid watched as the pilot walked down the stairs and approached them. He was expecting either Ari or Agent Brown to assist, since they originally helped pack the car when they left the hotel. It's not much. If we all carry two bags, it will just be one trip, he said to the pilot as he came closer to the car. Bahaja was already at the trunk, removing some of the bags. What about the car? Do we just leave it here? She asked. It will be taken care of, said Pravis, approaching Khalid with an extended hand. While shaking Khalid's hand, Pravis smiled. I'm Vincent. Nice to meet you. 
Nice to meet you, Khalid said, staring at him curiously and then figuring that he too must be of Sheol. I didn't catch your name, said Pravis. I didn't give it. Let's get these bags on board. Sure, sure. Not a problem, said Pravis. Let's see. What do we got here? Pravis grabbed two bags with no effort and turned to Bahija. Name's Vincent. I'll be your pilot for today. Bahija, she responded, picking up two other bags. Isn't that plane too big for just the four of us? Well, it is a little over 1,100 kilometers to our destination. A smaller plane would have to make too many stops to refuel, said Pravis. And how many stops will this one make? Bahija asked. None. That's impressive for a normal 15-hour flight, she said, proud that she had done her homework on the mission details. After the three finally made it to the plane cabin and dumped the bags in the rear, Pravis turned toward the four passengers. You are privileged to be in the only space plane not requiring assistance to obtain suborbital flight. We should be at our destination within three hours after takeoff, said Pravis, making his way to the flight deck. Wait a minute, said Khalid. Are you saying we're going into outer space? Time is of the essence for this mission. We have no choice but to bring out this prototype to get us there quickly. Pravis responded, it's perfectly safe. We've done this before, and yes, only one pilot is needed for such a short trip. Khalid sat down, waiting for his superiors to ask any questions. When they didn't, he asked one last question before leaving the pilot to his task. Where's the stewardess? Pravis looked briefly at Agent Brown and then at Khalid. We are well stocked and should have anything you need while you are not strapped in. Unfortunately, suborbital flights require you to be strapped in for most of the flight. But if you're that hungry, you can get your damn food anytime you want. Khalid watched in shock as the pilot closed the door to the cockpit, leaving the four in the cabin to fend for themselves. Kind of short-tempered, isn't he? Khalid said to Agent Brown. Agent Brown seemed deep in thought before he unexpectedly stood up. Let me talk to him. It's not necessary. I don't worry about it, Agent Brown said, quickly disappearing into the pilot's room and closing the door. Inside the cockpit, Brown sat down on the second pilot's seat and waited to be acknowledged. After a few seconds, Pravis sighed and looked at the subordinate. What? Brown tried to maintain his disappointment as he spoke. Why are you here? I thought this mission was mine to redeem our last loss. Your last loss, Pravis countered. Yes, my loss, said Brown after an awkward moment of silence, but all the more reason for me to make it right. I need this. Pravis stared into Brown's black eyes. We need this more than you need this. I'm here to ensure our victory. Continue to coordinate all efforts, but remember, I'll take over whenever I deem it necessary to do so. So, you don't trust me. I trust only myself. Now give me a quick update as I get this plane in the air," commanded Pravis. Back inside the plane cabin, both Bahijit and Khalid were settling in, preparing for the flight, when Agent Brown returned. With no emotion, he looked at the two and then rested his eyes on Ari for a long time. Ari turned from the gaze and stared out the nearest window. Agent Brown addressed Khalid and Bahija. Strap in. You'll be experiencing several G's when we accelerate to our hypersonic escape speed to help us reach suborbital flight. Unlike a rocket, the acceleration rate is reduced to lower the effects on the human body. But if you feel uncomfortable, please use the vomit bags under your chair. Once free of Earth's gravitational force during suborbital flight, you will feel a sense of weightlessness. 
You can then move around, but be careful since neither of you have ever trained to move around in zero-g. I don't recommend eating during that time. If you must ingest something, I suggest you do it now before we take off. I'll tell the pilot to give us a little extra time before takeoff. Bahaija looked at Khalid. I'm good, she said, more nervous about having food in her stomach during a flight that might cause her some discomfort. Let's go, said Khalid as he proceeded to strap himself in. Bahaija followed suit, but the two noticed that neither R.I. or Brown cared to strap themselves in. Without another word spoken, the engines to the G950 came to life and the powerful atmospheric engines vibrated throughout the cabin. The engines were typical jet engines, able to sustain a speed just above Mach 1, while the three suborbital engines would push the ship to its hypersonic speed just above Mach 5. As the plane slowly lifted off, Bahaija gripped the sides of her chair and tried to mask her anxiety. She'd been on planes before, but the aspect of going into space, even though it was suborbital, frightened her and fear was the last thing she wanted anyone to see. How fast is hypersonic speed, Khalid? Five times the speed of sound, said Khalid, but don't worry about it. We should enter space at a horizontal angle, not vertical like typical rockets. It's amazing. Never in my life did I ever think I would experience such things, she said, relaxing a little. The more she talked to Khalid, the more she felt her apprehension drain away. Khalid smiled. This is only the beginning of such wonders, Bahija. When the plane reached a certain height, its nose angled upward and accelerated forward as the horizontal jet engines came to life. After only a few minutes of a steep, steady climb, it eventually leveled off. The engines flexed their muscles and slowly accelerated to Mach 1 without difficulty. Once the plane oriented itself to its orbital exit route, the suborbital engines fired up, roughly lurching everyone in the plane backwards. Bahaisha felt the increased acceleration as her body was pushed back against her chair. The pressure slowly increased as the steady acceleration pushed the plane faster through the atmosphere. Eventually, the pressure steadied at 5 Gs, a typical effect on an awesome roller coaster ride. But on roller coaster rides, the discomfort lasted only a few seconds. While on this flight, the pressure was sustained far longer. The pressure pushed against Bahaisha's chest, making breathing difficult. She labored to get more air in her lungs but found herself becoming lightheaded as she began to hyperventilate. Ka, ka, Khalid, I can't breathe, she managed to say. Despite Khalid's enhanced strength, he could move and was dealing with the high pressure himself. You can't breathe normally, try to take short controlled breaths. He managed to say, knowing if he was struggling that she must be really uncomfortable. I can't get E. Enough air, she stammered as the cabin darkened she was starting to pass out. Brown slowly shook his head as he stood up and walked over to Bahaijo without any difficulty. It was as if the high acceleration didn't affect his body at all. He opened a small hatch above her head and removed the emergency oxygen mask. He slowly strapped it around her head and watched as the air started to flow better in her lungs. You have to take shorter, more controlled breaths. The pressure will still affect your lungs, said Brown. You'll be fine. Relax. Walking over to Khalid, Brown looked to see if the man needed assistance, need help. Amazed at Brown's ability to negate the effect of physical forces, Khalid shook his head and wondered what manner of men these inner core associates were. Brown paused before returning to his seat and didn't bother to strap himself in, since it really wasn't necessary in the first place. He glanced at Ari, 
who was still looking out the airplane window, and knew his compatriot would continue to follow his orders as long as Pravis allowed it. Brown's authority was greatly minimized with Pravis' presence, and there was absolutely nothing he could do about it. He was backed into a corner, but then something dawned on him. Even though he was no longer in full control of this mission, the presence of Pravis, who was one powerful entity, would only add to their chances of success. And success was really the only thing he needed to redeem himself. Using his peripheral vision, Khalid watched the inner core associates and felt unfamiliar doubt arise. He understood and embraced the science of the drug he had taken that enhanced his abilities. Abilities that made him stronger, increased his immunity, and even increased his mental abilities. However, what he'd just seen Brown do went against the laws of physics. Everyone in the plane was experiencing G-forces due to the increased acceleration of the plane except for Brown and Ori. Even though Ori didn't get out of his chair and walk around with no difficulty like Brown, he was acting as though he didn't feel any effects from the plane's speed at all. Were they wearing some device that negated gravity? Were they so physically powerful that they could withstand increased gravitational forces? No, thought Khalid. Something far more inexplicable is happening here. Still using his peripheral vision, he focused on Ori and studied him carefully. After a while, he noticed the giant of a man would breathe only once every two minutes. And that was the only detectable movement. It was if the man were barely alive. Focusing on Brown, he detected the same thing. Lowering his eyes, Khalid concluded that the evidence before him could lead to only one thing. With their unnatural eyes, uncharacteristic zombie-like breathing, and their ability to be unaffected by physical forces, it could only mean that they were more inhuman than human. If all of these attributes meant they were enhanced humans, then they were more inhuman than they appeared. How they became that way, he had no idea. But the evidence was that inner core associates were on a totally different level than any other agents he'd come in contact with. And if they were just associates, how different were the three that guided them? Khalid felt the effect of the G-forces slowly dissipate and his body becoming lighter. He looked out the window and noticed there was nothing but space directly in front of him and the earth below him. They had entered the suborbital phase of the flight. Bahija, look out the window, Khalid said. When he got no response, he looked at his associate and noticed that her eyes were closed. Fearing that she had lost consciousness, he unhooked his straps and tried to move toward her but found himself unable to control his movements. He had never experienced or trained for zero-g movement in a crap and found himself moving farther from her. Brown tilted his head toward Khalid and sighed. He again stood up from his seat, walked toward Khalid, and roughly shoved him back in his seat. Don't unhook your straps, we don't need you hurting yourself, he said, while strapping Khalid back in his chair. Brown then walked over to Bahija, removed the oxygen mask and checked her vitals. Turning to Khalid, he said, she's fine. The pressure of the acceleration was more than she could handle. She must have fainted. She's, um, not as strong as you. Wait, said Khalid before Brown could move to sit back in his seat. I don't understand. How can you walk like that in zero G? Do you have magnetic boots on? Brown smiled. Does it look like I have magnetic boots on? Khalid couldn't help himself, he had to know. No. But first, you walked around with at least five Gs pushing against us without it even affecting you. And now you're able to walk in zero G like there's still gravity. I know Ray's, Siriasis, and Fasa told me you two were powerfully enhanced humans, but this goes against the laws of physics. How are you doing this? 
Physics? asked Brown. Yes, it's as though you can negate gravity or the lack of it, Khalid said. Physics, Brown repeated. That's your prison. Keiko was still livid and barely spoke a word to Brooke for the duration of the flight to Edmonton, Canada. It was beyond all comprehension that, one, her director didn't grant her access to a private plane to Canada, and two, that both she and Brooke would have to meet with Alberta government officials before being allowed to continue their trip to Grande Prairie. And from Grande Prairie, it was nearly a nine-hour drive to the Bouchard complex. All these delays were a waste of time and precious moments lost, which would be crucial to either success or failure of the venture. After the plane landed and taxied over to the terminal, Keiko constantly glanced at her watch and shook her head at Brooke. It took all of Keiko's willpower to keep her mouth shut. Brooke knew that speaking would mean she'd receive the brunt of Keiko's anger. She agreed with Keiko's displeasure, but definitely didn't want to be the outlet for that suppressed rage. When the plane came to a stop, both Keiko and Brooke jumped out of their seats, grabbed their carry-in luggage, and went straight toward the exit door before the flight attendant gave the signal that it was fine for everyone to leave. The flight attendant, knowing that the two were US FBI agents, had allowed them to carry their weapons on board. She took a step back but quickly regained her composure. When it was all clear, she opened the door and allowed the two agents to scurry out before everyone else. Well, at least we had first-class seats, said Brooke, trying to keep up with Keiko. Shut up, Brooke, Keiko said through tight lips. Ouch, Brooke mumbled. The two walked to the waiting area for their gate and waited impatiently for their contacts to show. Moments later, the other passengers from their flight exited the plane and dispersed quickly. It was nearly 10 minutes later when Keiko saw three official-looking men dressed in dark suits and carrying no luggage heading their direction. Agents Carter and C. Cole Lee, said one of the men. When is the next flight to Grande Prairie, said Keiko as both she and Brooke flashed their IDs to the men. We have an office here in the airport, which should speed up our debriefing, said the same man. Keiko didn't budge. You didn't answer my question. The man considered several responses before deciding on one that would keep the interaction somewhat cordial. I'm sorry for the inconvenience, Agent Carter, just doing my job. Once we're done, and hopefully no longer than a few minutes, it'll be easier to answer that question. Fine, let's go, Keiko responded, still edgy about losing time in her efforts to get to Bouchard's compound. The group then proceeded through the terminal to the restricted area where law enforcement and terminal security offices were off limits to the public. Those present all stopped what they were doing and watched the group of very important people walking through their area. It wasn't often they saw important-looking government officials walking through the restricted area. Some wondered if it had to do with an imminent terrorist attack. The group came to a large, transparent office. The lead Canadian government agent knocked on the door before opening it and addressing the head officer of the Canadian Air Transport Security Authority, known as CATSA, for the Edmonton International Airport. Thank you for letting us use your office on such short notice, said the Canadian agent to the head CATSA officer who was sitting behind his desk. The CATSA officer looked at the five government agents in his office and stood up. He knew the drill. If there was anything that needed to be brought to his attention, he would have been included in this meeting. So, for now, he just complied. My pleasure, he said as he navigated around the group and left the office. 
The lead Canadian agent sat behind the desk and motioned for Keiko and Brooke to sit, though the other two Canadian agents remained standing. Your government has everything we sent them. Full disclosure. What else do you need to know? Said Keiko, cutting through all formalities and getting to the reason behind the meeting. It was your government that originally contacted us for assistance. The Canadian agent at the desk didn't flinch and maintained his eye contact with Keiko. Yes, that is true. We did ask for your expertise in the matter since your country was the first to allocate funds for an experimental departmental response team. But please understand for us to initiate an investigation against someone like Bouchard, it would obfuscate our relationship with him. Keiko didn't respond. The man had a knack for not directly answering questions, so she held her tongue until he did, not wanting to say the wrong thing if she opened her mouth. The man continued, despite the uncertainty of this investigation, Bouchard is still a Canadian citizen and has undeniable rights that cannot be ignored during your visit here. He's also an integral force to my government's security and is above any preconceived notions or concocted conjecture, not initially ratified by the Canadian government. Do you understand? Both Keiko and Brooke nodded, prompting the man to resume talking. Any physical or forceful action against Pouchard must first be sanctioned by the Canadian government. Any seizure of property or forceful entry into any of Bouchard's domiciles must first be approved by the Canadian government. Any detention of Bouchard, be it temporary or extended, must first be authorized by the Canadian government. Failure to adhere to any of these statutes will result in immediate deportation and a formal complaint lodged against the United States of America. Do you understand? Brooke immediately extended both hands to the Canadian agent. Here. You might as well put the handcuffs on now. With those rules, we can't do a damn thing. Why did you ask for our assistance when you won't let us do our job? Said Brooke, ready to leave the meeting. Keiko gently pushed Brooke's hands back to her lap. We understand, she said, determined to agree to almost anything so she could get back to her investigation. If success led to an international incident, she was ready to take that step. Please understand, said the Canadian agent. You are guests in our country. Even though we requested your assistance, that doesn't give you liberties within our borders. He paused to see if they fully understand their limitations before continuing. However, if you were to take with you authorized representatives from Canada, all pre-stated statutes will be withdrawn. Brooke shook her head as Keiko leaned in closer to the Canadian agent. Are there any such representatives present? Asked Keiko failing desperately to hide her displeasure at having her time wasted. Yes, we happen to have two such agents in this room standing on either side of you, ready to assist in your investigation, said the Canadian agent as the two standing agents nodded, indicating their readiness to join Keiko and Brooke. Keiko shot up from her chair and shook a finger directly in front of the Canadian agent's face. How dare you waste my time with such bull, don't you know time is of the essence? All of this could have been done on the phone hours ago instead of having us sitting in this office listening to your pathetic pre-rehearsed list of statutes. This isn't a game we're playing here, but something greater than both of our countries. If this mission is hindered by your moronic arrogance, I'll have you personally held responsible." Keiko shouted at the man. The Canadian agent diverted his eyes away from Keiko's, just doing my job. Standing up to full height, Keiko placed her hands on her hips. To hell with your job. Now give me my plane to Grande Prairie. I surely hope your two agents are already packed and ready to go. Ouch, 
mumbled Brooke, smirking. Physics, Brown repeated. That's your prison? Khalid stared at Brown in disbelief at the words he just heard. Never in his wildest imagination had he thought that any of the inner core associates possessed such inhuman abilities. One of those associates holding higher rank. What was the truth behind Rays, Siriasis, and Fasa? And what really was she all? Brown saw the confusion in Khalid's eyes and didn't care. Sooner or later, he would have to know the truth since he was already too deep in Sheol. Walking back to his seat, Brown sat down and looked at Ori, who had watched the entire encounter, shaking his head. Brown had been totally out of line by making that statement. It was now Pravis' decision to determine when and what level of information to reveal to their two guests. With that last statement, Brown circumvented Pravis' authority. Ari reasoned that, before they arrived at their destination, something was going to give. He didn't want to be in the middle when it did. Both Pravis and Brown were powerful entities. If they ever decided to challenge one another, anyone in the middle would surely be hurt. Inconceivable, mumbled Khalid. Nothing can live outside the laws of the universe. He then quickly reminded himself to keep his mouth shut and to keep his thoughts to himself. This new revelation required much thought and inner consideration. If he had somehow been led astray by those he had dedicated his life to, that would certainly change his whole outlook on everything. Looking at Bahaicha, he then wondered if he'd made the right decision by recruiting her. He'd have been so sure of himself and the organization, but now this small sliver of uncertainty had caused him to stumble. Minutes flew by as Khalid kept his thoughts to himself. He soon felt the pull of gravity returning as the plane ended its suborbital flight and re-entered the upper atmosphere. As the plane slowly decelerated, Bahaja finally regained consciousness and focused on Khalid. As her mind slowly began to remember the events leading up to her blackout, she checked her face for the oxygen mask, then looked at Brown, and then at Khalid. Khalid, I had the weirdest dream. Did I pass out? She asked. He nodded. The pressure of acceleration was too much for you. Brown was able to place an oxygen mask on you, everything is fine now. We seem to be decelerating. It shouldn't be that long before we land. That was the worst ride I've ever been on. Wait a minute, did I miss the suborbital part of the flight? Please don't tell me I missed it, asked Pohija, as she so wanted to see the planet beneath her. Sorry, but Ori, you'll have another chance on our return flight, said Khalid. Bahija shifted in her chair. Do you think it's all right to move around the plane? Khalid hesitated before responding. Sure, I think it's all smooth flying from now on. He looked at Brown for confirmation. Brown just smiled and shrugged his shoulders. Unlocking his restraints, Khalid stood up, walked over to Bahija, and released her seatbelts. Would you like some water? Yes, but I'll get myself. Need to stretch my legs. She said standing and then walking over to the small pantry. At that moment, Kravis walked into the cabin, assessed the state of his two human passengers, and then crossed to Brown. Any incidents during the flight, he asked Brown. Other than the female fainting and requiring oxygen. No, said Brown. Pravis looked at everyone before responding to Brown. There are things you all must understand before we land. Before Pravis continued, Khalid quickly realized that this was no oblivious pilot. He must hold a position higher than Brown and Ari to be talking with such authority. If he was indeed more powerful than those two, he hit it well. Resistance, said Pravis, is expected. It won't be a weak response, you too. 
Pravis pointed to Khalid and Bahija, are to interact and engage the Duquesnes, the hacker woman, and whoever may be assisting them. We have agents mobilized and ready to go as soon as we land. Ari will be your backup. Now, as for us, Pravis said, referring to him and Brown. We will engage our old nemesis on the battlefield we know all too well. They know we're coming, asked Brown, surprised. I thought there might be some element of surprise. Really? We should know by now never to underestimate them. We're going to handle this as a full-out assault. Pravis responded. Khalid couldn't remain quiet. Excuse me, but who are they? Brown turned toward Bahija and Khalid with disgust. A sickening darkness seemed to expand from his eyes, causing the two to immediately lose consciousness. Why did you do that? Asked Pravis annoyed. It would take too long to explain it to those two, and there are still some things they don't need to know yet. The three want him involved. Her, I couldn't care less about, said Pravis. Why? What's so special about him? Why do we? Are you questioning the motives of your superiors? Tread carefully, said Pravis menacingly. Brown lifted his hands in defeat. Fine. Why don't we just fill their minds with what they need to know to make this move along smoothly with no further interruptions? Agreed, said Pravis. Now, this is what needs to be done. Brown and Ari listened to the plans already in motion to ensure victory and the three's expectations for Khalid. After several minutes, both Bahija and Khalid opened their eyes and nodded as if they had just been participating in a meeting. You can count on us, said Khalid in obedience, ignoring a nagging discord from within. Good, prepare yourselves for landing. We should touch down within the hour, said Pravis, returning to the cockpit. The private Canadian government-issued jet tore through the atmosphere toward the Grande Prairie Airport. From there, it was only a few kilometers of driving to the complex. Keiko played over in her mind what she would do once she met Bouchard. She plotted out what steps to take and concocted subplots based all on his possible responses to her questions. Glancing at the two Canadian agents in Brooke, Keiko wished she had more people on this team to be better prepared for any unforeseen events. But to show up with such a force would be counterproductive and would most likely cause Bouchard to take a defensive position. When a cell phone from one of the Canadian agents rang, she focused on the muted conversation behind her. After a few seconds and several inaudible responses, the agent hung up and got Keiko's attention. We have a helicopter waiting for us at the airport, he said. I am informed to tell you that you have the full support of the Canadian government. Yeah, right, Brooke mumbled. We'll see how far that support goes. Thank you said Keiko to the agent before flashing a smile at her partner. Brooke wasn't going to let them off the hook so quickly. Keeping them uncomfortable for a while might force them to show their eagerness to reconcile. Leading over to Keiko, Brooke whispered into her ear, any changes in plans? No, everything's the same. Just plotting out possible courses of action when we meet Bouchard. Keiko responded. Brooke nodded. I hope those computer geeks come through. They need to step up their game if we're ever going to get a lead on this terrorist group. Yeah, I know. They're giving it their A-game already. Let's hope that's enough. You know, I always wanted to learn how to fly a helicopter. Brooke smirked, elbowing Keiko. Yeah, right, Keiko smiled, but not today. Keiko's thoughts flew back to Agents Jackson and Romero. She wanted to call them and ask about their progress, but she knew that, 
If they came up with anything significant, she'd be the first to know. Agents Jackson and Romero worked feverishly at their respective workstations, trying to do the impossible. There were always crumbs out there to find if you looked in the right place, but this group seemed to have perfectly removed any trace of themselves from the net, except for what they did to uncover the false leads coming from the Bouchard complex. Now that they had uncovered the existence of this group, they hoped it was just a matter of time before they found more evidence and crumbs. Several empty energy drink cans littered their desks and floor as the two were putting in massive amounts of overtime in between brief power naps. Jagged red capillaries populated the sclera portion of their eyes as fingers flew over the keyboard, and eyes darted around the multitude of monitors before them. As time continued to fly by, they both began losing hope that they would find anything. 